Good morning once again. Hope you've had a good week. It's a lovely day to come and worship in the presence of God. We will continue this day in the series on the subject of the mystery of human suffering. And we are working toward the center and the climax of the series. And the title of today's message will be Greatness in the Kingdom. It will be message number 12 in the series. I'm going to be reading several passages of Scripture. If you would like to follow along in your Bible or on the back of your bulletin, you will find the passages that are relevant from which today's material will be based or come forth. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily, or truly, I say unto you, except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Reading from Matthew chapter 23 and verses 11 and 12. Jesus states, He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be based, abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. And then reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, the climaxing of the Beatitudes, Jesus states, Blessed are you, or happy are you, when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Now, after spending the last two sessions reviewing the first eight messages on human suffering in general, and Christian suffering in particular, we're now ready to consider the relationship between Christian suffering in this present life and Christian rewards in the life to come. There is a continuity between this life and the next life. Our task in these remaining messages is to attain a balanced biblical position between salvation by grace and rewards based on faithfulness or deeds. We affirm that the Bible teaches both, and to ignore or avoid either of these biblical truths leads to great loss and confusion. In message number nine in the series, we asserted that the chief end or purpose of God in creating mankind was to develop individuals whose characters are capable of handling authority and to whom, in the end, God can entrust those positions of administrating the affairs of the new heavens and the new earth. I'm afraid that much of our theology, if you would ask the question, what's God's chief purpose in creating man, they would merely, it would merely be replied, in order to save him. I don't believe that's the chief end of God in creating man. I believe the chief end of God in creating man is not only to save him, but to put him in a place of dominion, sharing the rule and reign with over the administrating affairs of all the creation with the God-man, Jesus Christ, himself, and that this he will achieve through the sufferings of his Son and by bringing these people 
into the fellowship of His sufferings. And when this process of character development is completed, then their perfected characters will manifest three things. First, it will enjoy a willingness to live under God's authority. I put that very specifically. When this character of yours is completed, it will enjoy living under God's authority. The second manifestation of this character development is that it will enjoy serving others. What do we enjoy the most in this life? Having others serve what we desire. But when this character is transformed and renewed, it will enjoy serving others. Thirdly, this character will enjoy always choosing that which will honor and glorify God. Those three manifestations of character development will take place when God is through with the development of His people. Our Lord Jesus Christ now presently possesses all of these character traits. Not only as the eternal Son of God, which He was and always is, but now in His humanity. His humanity manifests all of these traits. In His earthly journey, He was tested in all points, like other members of the human race are tested, And yet, he remained without sin. In the book of Hebrews, we learned that he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And that now he is the captain or the leader of a new race of mankind known as the sons of glory. Hebrews 2.10 These are also known as his brethren. Hebrews 2, 11, and 12. And these individuals will share in partnership with Him dominion over the entire created universe, including that of the angels themselves. Sufferings and trials are in the appointed path for these brethren before they will be placed in such positions of honor. Jesus promised in Revelation 3.21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. There's going to be a sharing. In the humanity of Christ, he was faithful in all things to the Father, and was rewarded with the highest place in the moral universe. And to those overcomers, his brethren, the sons of glory, they will be given the privilege of sharing in that same dominion with Christ. Now, before we deal directly with the nature of the believer's rewards in the kingdom of heaven, we must address the relationship at hand, or the question at hand. Now, here's our question. Is there a relationship between the believer's deeds in this life and their position of honor in the life to come? Is there a connection, or is there a complete disconnection? Will all believers be equal in heaven? Or will some be rewarded greater than others? That's our subject today. And our title is Greatness in the Kingdom. And I hope you will listen carefully because things will be said today in the message that may somewhat seem untrue to maybe perhaps what you have been taught or what you have assumed. 
particularly relating to humility and the seeking of greatness. Brother Jim read a text before the service this morning warning us not to be lustful and greedy for things in this life. That is found in the Word of God. But I also want to present something today that there is a legitimate desire to be great in the kingdom of heaven and that we are motivated by Christ to do so. So listen carefully. And that's why that this message has been saved toward the last. Because if this message was brought without the framework of our puzzle, we would come out with a warped concept. All right? The disciples often debated the question of who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There was no doubt a degree of selfishness involved on their part. This has led many Christians to conclude that it would be an act of selfishness even to talk about gaining rewards in heaven. And thus, many Bible teachers just sweep over all the texts that relate to that, lest it produce a spirit of selfishness on the part of Christians. But this error overlooks the exhortation in Hebrews, which says that before a person can be pleasing to God, they must first, quote, believe that he is... And secondly, that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. You cannot please God if you do not first believe he exists. And you cannot please God if you do not secondly Believe that He rewards those who faithfully serve Him. Jesus clearly, plainly, and repeatedly taught that some would be great and some would be small in the kingdom of heaven. The rest of the New Testament simply develops and expands his teachings. In the Sermon on the Mount, he promised great rewards in heaven for enduring suffering on earth in the service of Christ. He said that when we are persecuted for his sake, we are to, quote, rejoice and be exceedingly glad For great is your what? Reward in heaven. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Later, in the same sermon, he promised rewards for service properly rendered to God. To those who give alms or money, pray and fast in secret, that is, to be seen of God, he says, your Father which sees in secret himself shall reward you openly. Catch that? If you do things not to be seen of men, God sees that. But God will one day manifest what you have done openly to all men. Jesus concluded this instruction a little later in the same sermon in Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20, in which he exhorts his disciples to lay not up for yourself treasures where? On earth, but lay up, now catch this, for yourselves 
Treasures where? In heaven. Get it? Lay it up for yourself. Treasures in heaven. Now, do you see how that if we don't have a biblical balance, someone would say, well, that's selfishness. Jesus is the one who said it. Though it cannot be sinful, there is a self-interest upon which that Jesus motivates His people to their performance of their Christian responsibilities. There is a way, Brother Asa, to increase your joy in heaven without it being sinful or selfish. Wouldn't you be interested in knowing what that way is? Then listen carefully. (laughs) Here Jesus is using the prospect of rewards to motivate His followers to faithful service. Here we also see that what we do in this present life will affect our rewards in the life to come. Jesus explicitly, that means clearly, without a doubt, taught that some would be greater than others in heaven, depending upon the degree in which they have obeyed His commandments here on earth. Let me quote to you from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 19. Well, rather than quoting it, would you turn there? Turn with me to Matthew 5, verse 19. The starting here of his great sermon on the mount. He states in verse 19 that, Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called what? What do you see? The least in the kingdom. In contrast, he went on to say, Whosoever shall do and teach them, The same shall be called, what is it? Great in the kingdom. Do you see then here that some are greater and some are less based upon the degree of obedience that they present to the commandments of God? In fact, if you would look on in verse 20, Jesus said that some would not even enter into the kingdom. And that being of all surprise, the ones that were looked upon as being the one most likely to enter the kingdom, the scribes and the Pharisees. But their goodness was only external. It didn't extend to the heart. And Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed that, of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even enter into the kingdom. So there is some that are not going to enter. There are some which are going to be least, and there's some which are going to be greater as it relates to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven. When we use that term, we're referring to the fact that Christ has come and set up a kingdom. That heaven has already arrived, and it can be said that because what he establishes here in this life carries over into the eternal state, which is primarily how we think of heaven. God has begun a good work in us here, and it will be completed in heaven. For that's where our citizenship is, is in heaven. But you must have heaven in you before you shall ever expect to go to a place called heaven. There must be a state exists prior to the place. Now, also in Luke 7:28, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest of all of the prophets. 
You remember that statement? So here, Jesus categorizes John as being the greatest of all the prophets. I haven't time to explain why that would be the case. But then he says, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. If I took time to enlarge upon that, we wouldn't stay within our time frame today. But I'm quoting the passage to show that there are some that Jesus ranked greater than others. In light of these passages and numerous others found in Jesus' teaching as recorded in the Gospel, it should not then come as a surprise to us why the disciples were constantly debating the issue of who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We write it off too quick that they're just selfish. That is true. And they were looking at the kingdom as being a political thing in which that they would attain certain positions in the government of Christ. But... That's not the only reason they were debating this. They were debating this question because Jesus was continually bringing it up. And they even asked Jesus this question. In Matthew 18:1, we read, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, it may surprise many Christians at this time that Jesus did not rebuke them for asking the question. If this was an improper question, why didn't Jesus just say, fellas, you're all carnal, you're selfish, don't even bring that up again. He did not even rebuke them for it. But instead, He explained to them what greatness was and gave them the prescription for how they could attain greatness in the kingdom. Neither did he deny the fact that some will have greater positions than others in heaven. But he went on to tell them how they could attain those positions in verse 4 of Matthew 18. Whosoever shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If ever there was an opportunity for Jesus to teach that God's grace makes everybody equal in heaven, this would have been the time to have done so. He could have settled it right there forever. By just saying, you ask me who's the greatest, don't even ask that. Everybody's going to be equal. But he didn't do so. Because God's grace does not make everybody equal in heaven. Now, what was there about the child that Jesus could use to teach what true greatness is? What was there about the child? Now, we could go into all kind of characteristics of child-likeness and uh, everything we could put down positive, and then, but then we could put up another list, all that's negative. Children are very lovable things, and at the same time, they're also little demons. So, when Jesus pulled this child out, he knew that he was dealing with a depraved creature. But what was there that he pointed out about the characteristic of the child, that he could say, this is what greatness is consisted of. One word. Humility. Humility. If you have been with us in this series, 
then we have explained to you that the meaning of humility is not going around with a low, with your shoulders all stooped and saying, I'm a nobody. But humility is submission to authority. What did the child do when Jesus called him out of the multitude? What did he do? We read in verse 2, And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. What did the child do when Jesus called? The little child came to him in obedience to the command of Christ. And that's humility. Humility is submitting one's authority to the authority of a higher being. So that when someone gives a command, Humility responds in obedience to that request. The Gospel of Mark also records this little child that Jesus took him up into his arms. Now, suppose you'd been that child. You didn't know anything about this strange man. You think you might have been a little hesitant in running into the arms of of a stranger? Whatever Jesus' demeanor was, there seems to have been no hesitancy on the part of the child. But Jesus said, come here, come here. And he came and picked him up and he said, now this is where greatness is, fellas. It's simple obedience to the command of another. True greatness submits to whatever God's will is as revealed in His Word and providential circumstances. That's too great. Those who submit the most will be rewarded with the greatest positions of honor in heaven. And those who submit the least will be placed, now listen, in the lowest places of honor in heaven. Now, keep that in mind as we work through this. Those who submit to the commands of Christ the most will be rewarded with the greatest places of honor, and those who submit the least will be given the least places of positions of honor in heaven. We'll have something to say about that in the song. Lord, build me just a cabin in the corner of glory land before we get through here. Okay? People say, I just I don't care about greatness in the kingdom. I just want to be a little humble servant over in the corner somewhere. If that's what your idea is. If you're put over in a corner, it'll be due to your lack of faithfulness in this present life. Not because you're so-called humility. Paul wrote that the reason why God lifted up Jesus to the greatest position in the universe was due to the fact that Jesus first humbled Himself in absolute submission and authority to commands of God. Philippians 2, 5-11. I'm assuming that you are familiar with that. Though He were God, He thought it not robbery or such, such, and He humbled Himself. And He came down and down and down, and He who was the greatest condescended to serve the least. And God rewarded Him with the greatest position in the universe. God the greatest becoming the least is where greatness is. Not God just manifesting His sovereign power but God manifesting Himself that He in His character is willing to humble Himself and serve a lower creature. That's where greatness lies. Humility is the first prescription for greatness in the kingdom, Brother Asa. That's the first prescription. Now, you still want to be great? Okay? The second 
prescription for greatness in the kingdom is servanthood. On one occasion, the disciples' discussion became so heated that strife and division arose in their midst. Turn with me now to Mark chapter 10, verses 42 and 45, through verse 45. It's at this point that Jesus intervenes and he says this. I'm reading from the New King James now. Now, they're debating this question. Who's going to be the greatest? James and John said, we want to be up there, right next to you. We know you've got the big throne, but we want to be one on the right and one on the left. And they even got their mother in on this issue. Always bring Mama along. You know, uh, she'll, she'll help. And the other ten got so upset when they saw what was going on, that there was strife and division. Now, Jesus is going to come into the picture here. Now, what is he, how is he going to settle this church dispute, this business meeting, you please? If you've ever been to a Baptist church business meeting, then you ought to know what I'm talking about. How is he going to settle this disagreement over greatness? He says, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your what? Be your servant. And whoever you desires to be first shall be slave or servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Now notice how Jesus handles the issue. Again, does it not surprise us that He does not rebuke them for desiring to be great? They're fussing among themselves about who's going to be the greatest, but he doesn't rebuke them for that. But he corrects their concept of what makes up greatness in his kingdom. He explains how that authority, dominion, or ruling over others can be interpreted in one of two ways. The way the world looks at it, and the way the kingdom of heaven operates. One can either rule by being the boss and insist on being served, or one can rule by being the servant and insisting on serving others. Get it? Now, he says, out here in the world of the unenlightened Gentiles, That's the way it works. Whoever gets to be top dog, then he gets to give the orders and everybody else has to do what he says. He says, my hearers, if you want to be great in the kingdom, it's the exact opposite. It's exactly contrasting to that of the way it works in the world. If you want to be great, now notice he doesn't say you shouldn't even desire to be great. But if you want to be great, then you must become a servant. And instead of insisting on your desires being done by others, and when they don't do it, that upsets you, then you must have a servant attitude that you are ready to serve the desires and the needs of others. If one pagan ruler is the boss over ten cities and another is boss over a hundred cities, the pagans in that kind of a kingdom consider the latter the greatest. Hmm? This fellow's made it bigger. He's really made it. He's got a hundred cities. He's over 
And here's a fellow that's got ten. Now, this one has got a hundred. He's the greatest. However, God's measure is exactly the opposite. The greatest ones are those who serve the greatest number of people. And Jesus then gave himself as the model for this greatness. Although he was their Lord, he served them because he came not to be served, but to what? But to serve. And I can't ever get over God in the flesh taking a dishpan of water and a towel and washing the dirty feet of human beings. Servanthood. How did Peter respond to that? No, no, you're the Lord. I need to wash your feet. And Jesus said, no, I must wash yours. So that's where greatness is. I'm setting forth the model here, the example of what really greatness is all about. Humility and servanthood are the two principles which make up the kingdom of heaven. While pride and dominion, or bossing others, are the leading principles in the kingdom of darkness headed up by Satan. Get that? Humility, servitude, the kingdom of heaven, pride and dominion, or bossing others, are the two leading principles in the kingdom of Satan. And one must be converted out of Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It's a kingdom of darkness in contrast to a kingdom of light. Modern disciples of Christ need to understand this principle also. If it were properly grasped, it would eliminate much strife and division in our churches. If our Christian faith is merely being used to boss and manipulate and conquer other people, it's not the real thing. When we are willing to promote others and make them great, we're on the road to greatness in the kingdom of heaven. I believe I need to state that again. When we are willing to promote others and make them great, we're on the road to greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Two prescriptions, Brother Asa, humility and servanthood, if you would be great in the kingdom. The third prescription for greatness in the kingdom is self-denial and sacrifice. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 16 and verses 24 and 25. Long before Jesus died on the cross, He introduced or spoke about the principle of cross-bearing. And we read here in Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25, If any man will come after me, or be my disciple, let him do what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, that's a dual play on words. To take up the cross is not separate from self-denial. It is explaining what taking up the cross is. Taking up the cross is denying oneself. Reading on, Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Cross-bearing involves self-denial and acceptance 
of whatever God's providence places in one's path. I had aspirations or plans for my life laid out from the time that I was a small child. I wanted to follow in the footsteps of my dad and be a Major League Baseball player. I lived and breathed baseball from the time that I was two years old until the time that I was about 18. Then about that time, my father, who was 40 years old, was stricken in a surgical error and died. My life's plans went up in smoke. I could do nothing about them. God changed them. I had to learn as a new Christian, only about six months in the Lord, that I must say, not my will, but thy will be done. That if I didn't to go into such and such a city and do this, I could make plans, but I had better learn the Lord has the option of changing my plans. Okay? And He does yours. What you are participating in today does not mean that you're going to live that way the rest of your life. There may be some great alterations on the horizon out here that's going to radically change your position in life that you're enjoying right now. And you're going to have to learn to bow to that as providential and deny your own self-interest and sacrifice your life's plans and desires if need be in order to serve Christ. As for me and my house, we'll what? We'll serve the Lord. The cross in Romans time, Roman times was a terrible instrument of torture and death. And Jesus was well aware that a man would have to be strongly motivated before he would agree to voluntarily undertake such a sacrificial action as dying willingly on a cross. He knew it would take some motivation that when he said, Brother Dana, to his disciples, except you deny yourself and take up the cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. He knew that there would have to be something in their makeup that they would need a motivation to be able to do that, that what they were going to lose would be replaced and a hundredfold more before they would give it all away. You don't just take something out of a person's life and leave a vacuum. There has to be something there to replace that loss. So he proceeded to give two incentives for bearing their crosses. The first one was the promise, whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And the second one is found in verse 27 there. If you have your scriptures open to Matthew 16, and there he states, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then shall He, what? Reward every man according and according to his works. That's in this whole context of cross-bearing. Here Jesus is explicitly stating that one's rewards in heaven will be proportionate to the intensity of their sacrificial suffering for Christ in this present life. Also, he is stating it is a commendable thing to seek to be rewarded in the kingdom of heaven. It's a commendable thing. Jesus commended that. So that when properly understood, 
This desire for rewards is not the same as selfishness in this present world. There is a legitimate way in which Jesus could use the prospect of of rewards to motivate His disciples to faithfulness and to serving. Perhaps the only... desire for greatness is seen in the lives of James and John as recorded in Mark 10, 35-40. Let's turn there again. I don't know of any passage that pinpoints our discussion any more than this one. There we read, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that you should do for us whatsoever we shall desire. <laughs> Man, that's that's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> I, I just can't read that. You, we 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 talk about there's no humor in the Bible. I I I find that sort of humorous. We just want you to do for us whatever we want. All right. Now how is our Lord going to handle this? And he said to them, "What would you that I should do for you? What do you want me to do for you?" And they said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand, the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. Jesus said unto them, You know not what you ask. Now, fellas, you don't know what you're getting into. Okay? (laughs) You want greatness? (laughs) I'm going to tell you. All right, here's the way to it. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of and with the baptism that I'm baptized with shall you be baptized. But, Sit on my right hand, and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Now here James and John recognize that Jesus would be awarded the throne of highest honor when the kingdom is consummated. They weren't saying, we want that throne. They knew he was going to be given that throne. And their desire was to be given the next two thrones of honor, one on the right, one on the left. Glance down to verse 41. Verse 41, this is the scene which caused the other ten disciples to become upset with James and John. But I would have you notice again for the third time that the text does not say that Jesus was upset with the desire. Instead, he does again what he has done on previous occasions. Namely, he explains how they might obtain a throne. And in doing so, he tells them up front that they really do not understand what they're asking for. Before they can be granted one of those thrones, they must be willing to undergo a what? A cup of suffering, which he himself was about to experience. What was he talking about? He was clearly talking about his coming crucifixion. As his words at the end of the discussion in verse 45 clarify, For the Son of Man came to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus was then saying to them, Are you willing to die for My cause and for My sake? What did they say? They both said that they could do so. Jesus then revealed to them that they would die 
for His cause. And be rewarded with a throne, but which particular throne they would receive would only be revealed by the predetermined or predestinated purpose of God. It's not yet open, not yet open, James and John, as to who's going to get those positions. That has been prepared by God. So Jesus, in essence, is saying, Brother Dana, that James and John would have to be willing to die as martyrs in order to obtain a throne close to His, because He died as such. Is it? Martyrdom is what would qualify James and John for ruling from the highest or the greatest throne. And they, and they would have to be willing to deny themselves and sacrifice their lives to qualify for the highest position of ruling in the kingdom of heaven. Asa, are you still with me? You still want to be great? You want, you want to be the greatest in the kingdom? Are you willing to die for the cause of Christ? So that's your greatest treasure, your self-preservation. You can lose your family, your job, your health. Look through the book of Job. The Lord to give up your life. But what did Job have to learn to ultimately say? Though he what? Though he slays me, though he takes my life, yet I'll, yet I'll still trust him. What makes up greatness in the kingdom of heaven? Humility, obedience to God's command, servanthood to others, and a willing to deny oneself and sacrifice one's own positions in this life and one's even life itself if called upon to do so. You see why he could say to James and John, tell us, you don't know what you're asking. Jim, do you remember when uh, Saul of Tarsus was converted and his name changed to Paul? He was told he's going to have the great honor of preaching before kings. Remember that? And what does the rest of the passage there say? And what great things he must what? Suffer. How was he going to be able to speak before kings from a prison? Through much tribulation, we enter into the kingdom. A willingness to die for the cause of Christ is the greatest act of self-denial which a believer can have. It is also considered by Christ as the highest honor which can be granted a believer. Did you catch that or did it go in one ear and out the other? Let me run it by you again. A willingness to die to die for the cause of Christ is the greatest act of self-denial which a believer can have. But it's also considered by Christ as being the highest honor which can be granted to a believer. If we suffer with Him, we shall what? Reign with Him. No greater love this than a man lay down his life. For his friends. And thus this qualifies that believer for one of the greatest greatest rewards in the world to come. Now the words of Christ in Matthew five, eleven and twelve and the Beatitudes begin to take on new meaning. Let me quote them again. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice. Don't become depressed. Be optimistic. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted the prophets which were before you. Great suffering is a great privilege. And great privileges bring on great promises. 
that what everyone loses in this life will be far more compensated in the life to come. You cannot give God, my people. We'll cover next week when the disciples ask for We've left all and followed you. What shall we have? Jesus explained to them lands and families and all kinds of things a hundredfold. And in the world to come, everlasting life. God will not shortchange anyone of His sons. His sons. If His precious only begotten Son was to be elevated to the highest position in the moral universe, God will not shortchange the rest of His Son. So what then is greatness in the eyes of God? It's to humble oneself before God's authority, serve others rather than oneself, and be ready to sacrifice whatever you value the most. Even your own life is called upon to do so. Now, some people may yet be ready to reply to these teachings today and say, well, Pastor, I'm not so concerned about being rewarded or honored in heaven. I only want to be saved and to humbly spend eternity in whatever lowly position God may give me. And that's what I encounter in Christian church, a false understanding of humility. And this is what and this is what produced the gospel song. It expresses this attitude. Lord, build me just a cabin in the corner of the glory land. Folks, there's not going to be a single cabin in glory. Not some run-down shack. You say, how do you know that? Look how the Holy Spirit has described the new Jerusalem in all sorts of rich, luxurious occurrences. Don't you think a wood shack would be out of place on a street of gold? Is this humility? No. Now listen, it is a disguised form of pride. That's right. As well as disobedience to God's will his children. Those in the lowest positions will inherit those inherit those positions due to their low level of commitment to the cause of Christ. If you do end up with a shack in the corner of glory land, it won't be an honorable place. It'll be a display of your lack of commitment to Christ in this present life. Okay? Then, I want to be great in the kingdom. I want to be humble. I want to be a servant. And I want to deny myself. And I'm ready to sacrifice for that cause. Because when... I do so, Asa, I glorify God. And God enables me to enjoy Him more and more and more and more and more. And the more I enjoy God, the more I glorify Him. And the more I glorify Him, the more I enjoy Him. That's greatness, as we'll see next week, what the reward consists of. I suppose that there are believers who have lived for the Lord, have been faithful in their duties to pray, study the Bible, give sacrificially of their income, shared Christ with others, been faithful to the church. I suppose, in contrast, there are other believers who have been unfaithful in these same areas. They rarely pray. They don't have time to, time to read the Bible. They won't give of their income. They're ashamed to witness for Christ. And they hardly ever show up at church. Does anyone seriously believe that both groups will enjoy and glorify God equally in heaven? 
Could the less faithful be rewarded the same as the faithful? If so, how would they be distinguished in heaven? Paul talks about some who have built carelessly on the foundation of salvation in Christ. And this is what he says will happen to them. 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15. If any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Also, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul tells us, we make it our aim or our ambition, whether present or absent, or absent to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Folks, that's in the Bible. And if you can't harmonize that with salvation by grace, then you need to do some more Bible study. The same Holy Spirit that taught one truth taught this truth. It in there. The word aim is the Greek word to love what is honorable. Paul says, I love what is honorable. Paul was speaking of his ambition in life was to strive for excellence, attaining spiritual goals, and living an honorable life before God in order to be well-pleasing to his God. Whoever strives for excellence in the Christian life will hear his master say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over me. Don't stop there. Enter thou into the joy of your Lord. We'll deal with that next week. That's what we want. It's the joy of the Lord. Strive for excellence. Maybe you have a degree in music. You studied. You had to strive for that, didn't you? You and Clint. You didn't just suddenly have a voice. You had that as a natural gift, natural gift, but you had to develop it. Strive for excellence. Oh, folks, let's get rid of this flabby, lazy, clawful Christianity. We can just loaf around. Let us strive for the excellency of the knowledge of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as some people enjoy the Lord more in this life, so they will be rewarded with an increased joy in the next. Because they have glorified Him much in this present life. God help us then to diligently seek excellence and greatness in the kingdom of Christ. How many of you can relate to the fact that there are Christians in this life who are enjoying God more than other Christians? Can that be denied? No, no. And who are those Christians? The ones, Brother Jim, who are seeking to glorify Him the most. I looked out over the auditorium today and I see a lot of empty pews. There's enough members on this church road that will all be filled. Do you think those people are enjoying the Lord the same as the ones who are faithful here each Lord's Day? If they're not in church, if they're not reading the Bible, they're not praying, they're not giving, do you think that they're really enjoying the Lord? Not to the degree that I am. I'm thankful to have a church, to have a church to go to. 
I'm thankful to have a Bible to read. I'm thankful to be able to have access to my Heavenly Father in prayer. I'm thankful God blessed me with the job that I've got money to give to the cause of Christ. I enjoy that and I want to do the best that I can. I want excellence. I don't want shabbiness. I don't want to cut corners in my life. I want to be the best servant that I can be by the grace of God. Now, folks, that will be carried over into the next life. And those who love Him here will love Him more there. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You may take these thoughts and given to us by our Lord Himself, that we not just push them away and that we may see the powerfulness contained therein, that if we suffer with Him, we shall reign with Him, and that it is given unto us not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer. That our faith is a gift that You have honored us with. And that our suffering is an honorable thing. Oh God, teach us through Your Word. In Christ's name, Amen.